That brings us to chapter 13. We are now at Kadesh Barnea. This is the climax of the entire book. Now, we talked about this last week. This is the whole point of everything that we've been moving through in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. The whole point is a God who chooses the family of Abraham so that he can bless them so that they'll be a blessing to the world. And one of the ways that God wants to bless them is he delivers them from their life of bondage in Egypt, brings them to Mount Sinai to give them his presence and his law so that they can know God and dwell with God so that he can ultimately bring them into the promised land, the greatest gift that Yahweh has for them outside of their salvation. Because the salvation in Egypt was being saved from their life of bondage. But the promised land is being saved to the land and dwelling with God. And remember, salvation always has two parts, the from and the to. Too often in Christianity today, we only talk about the from. We don't talk about what God has saved you to. And so this is the salvation of God. They've already experienced half the salvation of God being saved from their bondage. Now they're ready to be saved to the promised land where God is literally going to dwell with them here and he is going to begin to bless them and he's going to begin to use them to restore the Garden of Eden. And ultimately not the Garden of Eden in a totally tropical, let's make it look like that again, but the Garden of Eden where humanity and God can dwell with each other in a relationship. And so this is what everything everything we've been looking for. Even when we get to Hebrews, Hebrews is focusing on the land. That Abraham, by faith, was looking forward to a land. But since he did not receive it in his lifetime, therefore he knew that God would fulfill the promises, and therefore he was looking forward to a greater and better land. And that greater and better land is the second coming of Jesus Christ when he comes back to earth and restores everything the way it's supposed to be, a world without sin, a world where God dwells and walks with us. And so this promised land is a, another step towards the second coming of Christ. So basically the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve were walking with God, that's lost. So God kind of restores a little bit with the tabernacle. He's going to make it bigger with the promised land. He's going to make it even bigger with the coming of Jesus Christ. He's going to make it bigger with the Holy Spirit indwelling us. And then ultimately the kingdom of God will come to earth literally and dwell here and change everything drastically. And so that's what God is saying. So this is everything. And remember when you in Genesis, God has blessed Abraham. He has made them grow, but they still don't have the land. So Genesis ends with unfulfilled promises. Exodus, they're still not in the land. It ends with unfulfilled promises. Leviticus ends and they're not in the land. It ends with unfulfilled promises. This is it. This is going home to the house of God, so to speak. Not literally, but the beginning of it. And so this is everything that they've been looking forward to. This is the most important thing. And this is everything that all throughout the rest of the Bible and in the prophets, they're going to talk about one, more, one thing more than anything else, and it's the land. And even when they get kicked out of the land for a judgment of their sins, if you read through the prophets, the main focus of the prophets is the judgment on them for disobeying God. Therefore, they lost the land. But the incredible, loving, and gracious God who promises to restore them back to the land one day. And the prophets all look forward to a day 
where they will receive more of a land than anything they have ever had. And what they're talking about is the land that Christ is going to bring. And so this is one of the most major focuses of the entire Bible. And they're finally there. They're finally there. Okay, so the way that a lot of Christians view going to heaven, this is what that is for them. So we all know the story. They're ultimately going to say we can't take the land. Now, when you realize how important the land is, how every single book focuses on it, how that is the ultimate end goal of all the salvation, all the redemption that God is doing, is to bring them into the land, and that there is literally no life and no blessing from God found outside the land. And it's made very clear by the fact that Adam and Eve are kicked out of the land, and the fact that their punishment for their disobedience to the law is the nation of Israel will get kicked out of the land one day. And so the reality is, and even when you get to Revelation, God makes it very clear that those who were outside of the kingdom of God, the land, there was weeping and gnashing of teeth in the darkness. There is literally no blessing or relationship with God outside the land. So to them get here after God has done so much and to reject it is a huge rejection of Yahweh. And so what we're coming to is one of the greatest rebellions of humanity in the Bible. The first greatest sin or fall was the original fall. Adam and Eve choosing to take matters in their own hands and get things the way that they wanted to and not the way that God wanted them to. The second major event of rebellion is when God has just delivered them from Egypt, given them their law, and said, I will dwell with you, and 40 days later they worship a golden calf. Now we've come to the third greatest rebellion of God's people. And that's when God has finally brought them to the fullness of their salvation, as full as it can be in this life, and they're going to reject it. They're going to reject it. So, chapter 13. Yahweh spoke to Moses, Send out men to investigate the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites. You are to send one man from each ancestral tribe, and each one a leader among them. So Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran at the command of Yahweh, and all of them, all of them were leaders of the Israelites. Now when you read Numbers, it sounds like God is saying, hey, pick one person from each tribe and send them out as spies to see what the land is like. But when you read Deuteronomy um, chapter 1, verses 22, you find out when Moses gives you God's perspective, Deuteronomy kind of takes you through the whole book of Numbers again, but this time it's God's commentary. It's like the director's commentary on the movie. Okay, Now you get God saying what he thought about everything. You find out that it wasn't God's idea to send spies. The people wanted to send spies. And that God allowed them to send out spies because their faith was weak. So what we'll find out in Deuteronomy is this. They don't know if they can take the land. They don't know if they can conquer the enemy. But what's the problem with this? They have no faith in God. They have no faith in God. God has promised them the land. God specifically told them this land is flowing with milk and honey. And remember the idea of milk and honey is milk and honey are like the most, the sweetest, most sought-after aphrodisiacs in the ancient Near East. 
Okay, they're, all, they're not pumped up full of sugar all the time like you and I. So that stuff is like rare, it's sweet, it's awesome, and when it comes straight from the honeycomb and the cow, it's a lot better than what you get in the grocery store. And so the idea is that if you're obedient to Yahweh, Yahweh will send the rain. And when he sends the rain, then the crops and the flowers and the plants and the trees will grow abundantly. And when they grow abundantly, the land will produce a massive amount of honey from the goats and the cows. It will produce a massive amount of, um, sorry, did I say honey? Milk. A massive amount of milk from the goats and the cows. <laughs> they didn't teach you that in um, science class. Um, and it will produce a massive amount of honey from the beehives. But when the Bible uses the word honey, it also means the, the, the buttery jam that comes from figs and dates as well. That's another word that they, they called that honey too. And so basically this is what God is saying. The land will be abundant, way more than what you can imagine. But the only way they can have to see this is the difference. Egypt, it didn't matter whether it rained or not. The Nile was so faithful and it's flooding and receding that the land was always fruitful no matter whether it rained or not. Mesopotamia with the Tigris and Euphrates. Yes, sometimes the storms are so violent that the rivers flood and wipe things out, but overall the land still produced crops. Canaan is unusual because Canaan is incredibly fertile, but only if it rains. And the only one that really truly controls the rains is God. And that's when we get to Deuteronomy, God says, if you're obedient, then I'll send the rains. Meaning the land can be incredibly barren if there's no rain, or it could be a tropical paradise if there's rain, and God controls it. And it's based on their obedience, their relationship to the law. And so this is what God is saying. So that that's what he told them that. But he also told them that there's a great and powerful enemy there. There are the Canaanites, and the Amorites, and the Girgashites, and the Hittites, and, and the Perizzites, and all these ites, and they're there, and they're formidable. So he's already told them the good and the bad. But he's also made it very clear by defeating Egypt and defeating the Amalekites and defeating um, other forces that he can do it, if they have trust. So when they say, let's spy out the land and see if we can take it or see what it's like, they're ultimately saying, we don't believe whether God can actually do this. And so they immediately start off right off the bat saying, I don't know if God can do this. And that's exactly what you and I do. No matter how much you say, I believe that God is all powerful, he can do anything he wants, the fact that you don't immediately start your problems off with prayer, or the fact that you try to seek out other solutions, or you have doubts of whether this will work out, is you immediately saying, I don't think he can do it. See, faith is not just an intellectual theological statement you make. Faith is also an emotional belief that you will put all your emotional trust in God as well. And so they're no different than you and I, even though they look worse in the, in the Bible. <laughs> but the reality is this is supposed to be you and I. Remember, numbers is a mirror for us to look into. And so they immediately doubt. So God says, okay, if you're going to go spy out the land, one person from each tribe. Send them in. Normally ask for a volunteer to read all these names, but I won't do that. <laughs> so there's one person from each tribe. Verse 17, when Moses sent them to investigate the land of Canaan, he told them, go up through the Negev. So go up through the Negev, the southern part right here, and they'll go all the way north to the top of the land and come all the way back south again. 
and they're to investigate and find out what's going on. See what the land is like, and see what, whether the people who live there are strong or weak, few or many, and whether the land they live in is good or bad, and whether the cities they inhabit are like camps or fortified cities, and whether the land is rich or poor, and whether or not there are forests in it, and be brave, and bring back some of the fruit of the land. Now it was the time of the year for the first ripe grapes. So Moses says, go and spy out the land and see if you can see if it's anything different than what God said. But it won't be. So they went and they investigated the land. Verse 21, the wilderness of Zen and Rahab, and at the entrance of Hamath. And when they went up through the Negev, they came to Hebron, where the Ahayam and Sheshai and Talamai and the descendants of Nach were living. Now Hebron had been built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. Now these are fortified cities that we've actually discovered in archaeological digs, and they were formidable. Formidable for that. When they came to the valley of Eshgal, they cut down from there a branch with a cluster of grapes, and they carried it on a staff between two men, as well as some of the pomegranates and the figs. That place was called Eshkol Valley because the cluster of grapes that the Israelites cut from there, they returned from investigating the land after 40 days. They go to the land, they spy it out, and they come back with a cluster of grapes. It takes two people to carry this cluster. They put a stick on one shoulder of one guy, and then this other end of the stick is on the other shoulder of the guy in front of them, and the cluster of ga- grapes is hanging from that. Now, I remember when I was in Sunday school class, my Sunday school teacher on that flannel graph board, the green board, they threw this like picture of grapes up there when the grapes were huge. They were like four square balls or something like that. <laughs> the bands, listen, this is not an American grape on steroids. That was not the point. The point was that the grapes were normal-sized grapes, but the cluster was huge. The cluster was the height of a man, and it took two people. And this is really significant, because it's not that the grapes are huge. That's almost like Willy Wonka, fantasy, like James and the Giant Peach, kind of unrealistic, what do you do with a grape that big? The point is that one seed, one branch, was producing an abundance of fruit, lots of fruit, enough to take care of lots of people. And this fits in with the parables of Christ where you will produce a hundredfold and even greater than that in your witness. So the idea is not that these grapes are huge. The idea is that one seed is producing multiple. And that's significant too because what was the promise to Abraham? That your descendants will be multiple. The command to Adam and Eve was go out and be fruitful and multiply. The idea is not size. The idea is multiplication, abundance. And that's what God is trying to paint a picture of them, that he is going to provide them crops that will produce an abundance, a multiplication of food and security and provision for them. And imagine seeing these men come back and see that. Because that's every farmer's dream. Most farmers don't want giant ears of corn. Most farmers want crops that produce multiple abundance of things. And so this is every farmer, every person's dream. Most people don't want giant sheep that they can ride. Most people want somebody, the sheep to produce a whole litter, if that's the word you use sheep, I don't know. This is the idea that God is trying to give them as they carry this grape cluster back that is very large. So verse 26, they come back to Moses and Aaron and the whole community of the Israelites in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. And they reported to the whole community and showed the fruit of the land. 
And they told Moses, We went to the land where you sent us, indeed flowing with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. But the inhabitants are strong, and the cities are fortified, and very large. Moreover, we saw the descents of Anak there, and the Amalekites live in the land of the Negev. And the Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live by the sea and along the banks of the Jordan. So notice that they bring back the visual of the fruit, but they can only talk about the enemy. Now, I find this interesting because, in one sense, visuals are more powerful than talking about something. You can talk about something all you want, and people have a hard time picturing that. But if you present a visual, then that becomes very concrete. And so one would think in some senses that the visual would dominate them rather than the stories of the great giants that they can't take. But what's also interesting is that at the same time, the imagination can go wild. And the imagination can make things seem bigger and scarier than what they really are. And so that's what we see here. They present a visual of the abundance of the land, but they also paint this really graphic, (laughs) scary picture of the land to ignite the imagination of everything. And and like with most humans, we tend to imagine things being way worse than they ever end up being or, or anything that could ever anticipate. And so that's what begins to go wild is their imagination. And so they talk about all these things, the sons of Anak. Now, we know that there are giants in the land. Now, I know this is where a lot of people are like, oh my gosh, here we go. But remember the word giant is relative. <laughs> okay, if we stand up against some of the basketball players in the NBA, we would probably call them giants. Some, some of those guys are tall. I forget the guy's name, but we have a picture of a guy who lived in America who, in the last hundred years, and he was eight foot um, 11, eight foot nine or eight foot 11, something like that. So now remember, the, the um, average height of an Israelite during this time is five foot three. So if you're a five foot three standing up against an eight foot nine guy, <laughs> he's a giant. Okay, he's a giant. So don't let this carry you away and think fee five foot thumb, a kind of giant in a fantasy kind of a sense. That's not the point. The word giant is relative. The point is just that they're much taller than we are. And so if we know for a fact, and we have a picture of a man in not our literal lifetime, but close to it, of a man who's eight foot nine, then this is not unrealistic to see people here that might be about that tall and seem very giant-like. And we know that Goliath was about nine foot tall, so that's only a few more inches more than what this, even what we have a picture of in our own lifetime of it. So don't think of this in a fantasy, unrealistic, the Bible just went wild with giants. Think of it more as they're just really tall compared to them. At the same time, too, even if they're really, really, really big, then it is what it is. And you have to realize that animals got a lot bigger than that back then. Okay, there, there are, There's actual skeletal remains of... Um, that we've dug up of badgers, like the size of like a, a giant dog, okay? And, and we have, uh, when you go to the Israeli museum, you can walk into the Israeli museum and there's horns of a bison. They're like 12 feet and they're huge. So we actually have skeletal remains in museums 
of tigers and, and oxen and stuff like that that are like twice, three times bigger than what we're familiar with today. So that would not then be unrealistic to think that humans could also get. Now, the other thing to understand is not saying that everybody in the ancient world is that tall. It's specifically referring to certain groups of people. So the idea is not that this entire land is full of them. There's just certain groups. But obviously, if you go into the land and you see those certain groups, that's going to stick in your memory a little bit more than the other groups that weren't that tall. And so what they see is fort after fort after fort after fort. Now, this is huge because the only thing they've ever known in their lifetime is Egypt and the wilderness. Now, Egypt didn't have fortified cities because Egypt so successfully controlled the Nile that it was very hard for an army to come down through the desert and get through the desert and then stand up against Egypt. Egypt was used to the desert. This was their backyard. This is what they trained in. Okay, this is kind of like when Hitler went to, against Russia. And Russia didn't actually defeat Hitler. The, the winter of Russia defeated, not the soldiers, not the army. All the Russian army did was just keep backing deeper and deeper into Russia. And so we'll let the cold kill you. But the cold didn't kill them because they were used to it and they had vodka. So the reality is, the reality is that's what Egypt was like. Egypt controlled all this. They fortified it. And an army that wanted to attack Egypt had to come all the way from Mesopotamia or Don. By the time they got to Egypt, they were already worn out. A lot of their supplies were used up. And then they had to go into the desert of barrenness. So Egypt didn't really fortify itself. No one really lived in the wilderness except for nomadic tribes, and they were nomadic, so they didn't fortify themselves. So this is the first time they're walking into a land, and every city they're coming to have large walls and forts and, and all this stuff, and that would be impressive. That would be, oh my gosh. It's one thing for us to go up against an army in the wilderness and see God do something, but we've never seen God go against fortified cities. And so that's what you need to understand is that in some ways, yes, how pathetic are they that they don't have faith that he can conquer them? But another way, they're also seeing something they've never seen in their entire life. But here's the real problem. They can't translate past experiences to new experiences. So the real true beauty of faith is the ability to see that God did something in the past and translate that into something else in the future. And this is what Abraham did. Remember, Abraham is asked to sacrifice his son. And he knows that God abhors child sacrifice. But at the same time, God is telling you to sacrifice your son, and you don't say no to God. And on the other hand, he knows that God has promised him that this child will bring the blessings of God. But now God is telling him to kill this child, therefore kill the blessings of God. So Abraham knows that God, he's learned that God can defeat Pharaoh in Egypt. He's learned that God can defeat armies in Canaan. He's seen God defeat different things at different times all through his life. And every single time God says, I'll do something, he's always fulfilled that promise. So Abraham's faith is able to say, if God can do anything in military and through children and all that kind of stuff, and God is always faithful, then God can raise my boy from the dead. He's never seen a resurrection before. Yet he's able to take this and this and this and this in the past of what God has done, and he's able to connect the dots and translate it into something that he's never seen before because he knows that God is unlimited in his ability to do things. And that's faith. 
And we know that that's true relationships. Even with our friends, even with our spouses and our family, we want to know that if you know who I truly am, I've been through the past, then you should be able to trust me in the future, even though we've never crossed this bridge before. What God wants them to do here is, can you take the fact that I have defeated Egypt, I have defeated the Amalekites, I've done all these things, I provide you water, I provide you food, I've done all these things, can you translate that into a new experience and say, God can do it here too. That's real faith. And that's exactly what, you're, what anybody wants from you. Teachers, they don't want you to just be able to do the same math equation again. They want you to be able to do the math equation so well that no matter how, how, what a math equation they throw at you, you can translate that and say, I know how to work this problem, even though it's a different problem. And that's what God is saying. This is a different problem, but you've already been taught how to work it. And the way that you work it is you go to God and you trust them. But they're not going to do that. They're going to focus on the fact that, but I've never seen these exact numbers in this place of the equation. I don't know what to do. And so they begin to complain. And they say, we can't take the land. Now Caleb is the first one to step up. Verse 30. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses saying, let us go up and occupy it. For we are well able to conquer it. But the men who had gone up said, we are not able to go against the people. So Caleb stands up. Caleb is from the tribe of Judah. He's the leader that represented Judah that went into the land. And he comes back and he says, we can do this. Nothing's impossible with God. Now Caleb is an amazing man because when we get to the book of um, Joshua, Caleb is going to go in the land and they're finally taking the land. And Caleb says... Where are the giants at? And they're like, in that city, in that city, in that city. And he's like, I'll take those cities. His faith is so confident in God that he says, give me the biggest, baddest cities and I'll take it. You guys can have the little faith cities. Okay, I'll take the big faith cities. And that's what Caleb is. From the very get-go, he's like, we can do this because God is with us. That's all that matters. And remember, that's the answer that God gave Moses five times. And Moses says, I can't do this. I can't speak. I don't go. Who am I? And God says, I am with you, I am with you, I am with you, I am with you, I am with you. And Caleb is another man like Moses who's learned that lesson. If God is with you, it doesn't matter. Now, it may not work out the way that you want it to, but it will work out. And it will probably work out even better. And so Caleb says, we can do this. But the other people step in and say, no, we can't. And now it becomes a battle of faith and lack of faith. And of course, we're negative people that tend to focus on the gloom. So they go that way. But the men who gone up with them said, we are, able to take, not, we are not able to go up against these people because they are stronger than we are. That's important. Notice that the focus is on our strength, our effort. Caleb says, God. They said, we. All they can think about is what they're equipped to do. And if that's all you think about, heck yes, it's impossible. It's impossible. Then, verse 32, they presented the Israelites with a discouraging report. Now, in the original Hebrew, it actually communicates the idea that it's an evil report. The Hebrew says they presented them with an evil report. And the idea is that when I'm trying to persuade you to not have faith in God, that's evil. That's evil. 
They presented the Israelites with an evil report of the land that they investigated, saying that the land that we pass through to investigate in the land devours their inhabitants. Now we're just making stuff up. All the people we saw there are of great stature. Now they're over-exaggerating. All the people were giants. That's eh, not true. We even saw the Nephilim. Okay, now remember the Nephilim were the, the, dis, the, dis, um, the people from the sons of God and the daughters of men of Genesis 6. Now a lot of people try to argue this, that like if God wiped out everybody in the world through the flood and got rid of the Nephilim in Genesis 6, then he must have not been successful because here they are showing up in numbers, still living in the land. And maybe Mo, Noah, one of his kids or grandchildren, turned out to be a Nephilim somehow. Well, I'm not going to go into who the Nephilim are again. If you want that, go back to Genesis 6 and listen to that. But the reality is this. Just because they said it doesn't mean it's true. <laughs> okay, just listen. Listen very carefully. Don't take me out of context. <laughs> not everything in the Bible is truth. And the theological, this is the way that life is. Everything in the Bible truly did happen. Everything in the Bible truly is the what people said. But not everything in the Bible is truth. And what I mean by that is when you have a bunch of rebellious, ignorant people who are not trusting God, and they tell you there's an ethylene in the land, that doesn't mean that's truth. God is truthfully reporting what they said, but he's not saying what they are saying is truth. Does it make sense? And we see, we know that. We know that. In some ways, we think like everything in the Bible is truth, so it was there, that that must be true. And we fall in this trap thinking there was Nephilim there. But then if you really think about like, okay, what did really bad people like Sisera say and Jacob say and all this kind of stuff, you realize, well, they, they're not speaking the truth all the time. So we need to put both of those knowledges together and say, okay, just because they said it doesn't mean it's true. Because they're also saying everybody is a giant. So this doesn't mean that the Nephilim of Genesis 6 are in the land. It means that they have painted this picture of Genesis 6 in their mind. And that's what they're trying to convince the people of. We are like grasshoppers to them. Notice the focus. We, 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 we. Now, this is bad. Here's the report. The report of Caleb and the report of the ten spies. The question is, who will the people listen to? Mm 